guys uh, got all quiet and look like you're ready. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for your smile. Appreciate that. So this morning, uh, we are in our series, Better Together. It's our fourth week, and just really talking about, we're talking about relationships, we're talking about marriage, we're talking above all, though, about the new family of Jesus, and what it is to be a member of the new family of Jesus, and how we do things differently in the new family of Jesus. And that's really confusing to the culture around us. Uh, today we come to the fourth. So the first week was seek God, and that's like that's number one always on all things uh, in our worship, in our in our in our gatherings. You know, it's really all about Jesus, right? It's it's about Jesus, it's not about me. I, I was uh, just kind of poking around recently, looking at other churches and what they're doing, and just trying to get ideas and stuff. And I kind of noticed this common theme of like the stage is always dressed to the nines. The stage is always just so perfect. And I was kind of watching, and I'm like, man, this just something feels. Something feels not right because it was focused on the stage and not on Jesus. And I'm not saying that people are bad or anything. I just, and it just kind of sat with me. I'm like, yeah, my focus is always Jesus. Jesus first. Jesus first in all things. If I can do it, I mean, and I'm not perfect. I'm not. I don't make it 100 percent of the time. I would be maybe say I'm about 70. That's a, on a good day. 70 percent all about Jesus. But I'm shooting for for 71 this this week is what I'm shooting for. And it should be pretty easy to do because I'm going on vacation. So it's a lot easier to trust Jesus when you're on vacation, right? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It depends on where you go. Uh, so anyway, that's first is seek God with your, with your one, uh, with your two, I mean. God is your one. Your, your spouse is your two. Your friends are your two. Seek the one with the two. Make sure that this is working. Uh, week two, we said, so seek God fight fair, and we talked about how we do conflict differently in the new family of Jesus, right? Seeking true peace, not a false peace, not a peace that is predicated on lies, a peace that is predicated on not being able to share your opinion or share your heart or what's going on inside of you, being able to navigate disagreements differently, that we do true peace, the peace of God in the new family of Jesus. Amen? All right? Week three was last week. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. (laughs) Was it just last week? Oh, it was, yeah, Heidi and I spoke on Fight Fair. I'm getting this all mixed up, guys. That's why I have to redo this every week. This isn't for you. This is for me. I have to know where I'm at. So week three was uh, have fun. The best of all those sermons to preach on, honestly, like if you're going to like pick, you know, you pick the short straw or the long straw, that was definitely the long straw talking about having fun as the people of God, that we are full of joy. How many of you had some fun this last week? Okay. If you didn't have fun, so in, in elementary school, the homework still applies. It doesn't just go away. So you still have to go out and have fun this next week, only you get half credit for it. So I'm sorry, but it, you don't want that to go in the book as a zero. Um, and there is extra credit this week. So if you have fun more than once, you can get extra credit and make that to a whole grade, okay? So is everybody in on that? Going to go have some fun this week? And if you had fun last week and you still want to do the extra credit, you can. Congratulations, you can get more than an A this week. Uh, so then we come to week four, which is this week, and it's the week that, uh, if I'm really honest, I've been dreading. Um, we're going to talk about staying pure. And that is, just just that right there may have triggered some of you. I, I don't know. Um, you guys know what I mean by triggered? Is that like a familiar term to you guys? I don't know if it's like pop psychology or something. It's like, if you have a gun and the gun has a trigger and you pull the trigger and it blows, you know, shoots a bullet, uh, triggered. It's where something engages us in our mind. It brings back a memory or a feeling. Um, we, we shut down. We get scared. We get angry. Some of us blow up. Um, sometimes people who are triggered use triggers. Just saying. So this, this may have triggered you. Just these words, stay pure. Um, and I've been really nervous to talk about it. I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to write this this week. And I came up with piles and piles and piles of stuff, some new learning for myself as well along the way. And um, so as I come to it this morning, what I really want to do is not preach you a sermon, which is why I brought this stool up here. My goal is I'm going to try to sit down right now, and I just want to try to have a chat. Can you guys just, like, wiggle in your seat for a second, get comfortable? Not not too comfortable, <laughs> Because, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody falling asleep. Emma, stay awake. Um, I, I just kind of want to, if, if we could be, I wish we could be, in a living room somewhere. 
just having this conversation about about purity and the Bible and and God and and in grace and mercy and and how all this kind of goes together. Just when we talk about sexuality and purity, often we kind of come from one side or the other. One side being that God is a holy God and He demands certain behavior from his children. He demands for them to act and look like the new family of Jesus. And he has a right to because he's holy. And then we come from this other side that, well, you know, but God is a God full of grace and a God full of mercy. And, and, and he is, he's just always forgiving and always, always like not glossing over sin, but forgiving sin and removing sin. And he's just so full of grace. And we can come to this place of, of just grace alone and never never transform or change. You follow me with what I'm saying here? Grace needs to have teeth, right? So when God is holy and he gives grace, his grace has teeth. It costs him something. And so this morning, that's what I'm hoping to to bring is a, is a grace with teeth this morning. So a, a whole lot of love and, and maybe a little bit of a prick um, in our hearts and, and what God's calling us to. Uh, this subject is, it, if you've got kids in here and you're worried about it, we're going to be fine for 12, 13-year-olds. That's what I see in the room. Um, and honestly, I kind of hoped, and I do this every week, I hope there's more people here than there ever is. But I kind of hope that more of us were here because this is a really important conversation. Because um, sexuality is out of control in our culture. It really is. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. I mean, it's, it's, it's off the hook, which is a fishing analogy. And I don't know why I had to use that there, but I did. Um, and then on top of that, you know, so we got sexuality that's off the hook, but then sexuality in the church has not been done well. We've not talked about it well. Um, I just want to like be really upfront about this. I, as a pastor, have not talked about this well. Um, I chose, as a young person, uh, a, a decision for purity in my sexuality and chose to remain a virgin until I was married. It feels, it feels even awkward saying that. So this is why we're in my living room, not here in church. Um, <laughs> It's like, we're in my living room in my house. Stay out of my bedroom. Um, and, but I, I, was, I was talking with Sarah, actually, this morning about this. And I said, you know, as I was processing this, I realized that while I made that decision, it wasn't based on any biblical knowledge. It was just entirely based on, well, this is what your leaders told you to do. And I said, okay. And then I was really shy. And so that, you know, being shy kind of makes it easy. Um, if you, if, like, you're afraid of girls? It's really easy. Um, so, you know, and, and purity really for me at that age and stage of life really only, um, applied to what we did with our bits and bobs as a a friend of ours. We got to hear recently Deb Hirsch. She's a, she's Australian. So she talked about sexuality and she talked about bits and bobs. And, uh, so it wasn't offensive. It was really kind of fun and I can't do the accent. So you just have to go with it. So anyway, purity just, just applied to what we did with our bits and bobs, Right. So we did in our bedroom or a car or wherever. It's not a holistic view. And so the church hasn't dealt with um, sexuality on a holistic view. And so people will come uh, to church and they'll hear a really hard sermon if they hear anything at all on sexuality. They don't hear that it's good, that God made it, that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is so critical for us to understand I, I can't hammer this home enough. If you guys would just all memorize Genesis 1 through 3, you'd probably make me much happier, Pastor. Um, I don't know if it'll help you at all, but it's just amazing. And it helps us understand our, our who we are. And it helps us understand who God is and, and what God's design for things are. If you've come in this morning and you, you were triggered by those words, stay pure, I, I just want to ask you just to kind of settle into your chair and, and, and give this a listen. And, and hear the heart of God this morning. If you've come this morning and you've got nothing but, you know, even, this is interesting too, because our consciences tell us that these things are wrong, even when our culture tells us that they're right. And we come in wounded and hurt, and we carry pain from a lot of past relationships. We carry pain from our families of origin um, over sexuality and these things. And, and you're sitting here and going, you know, I'm just filled with shame right now that there's something that is, is, is permanently broken inside of me, and, and I'm just forever going to be that way. And so I'm just going to do what Solomon said to do last week, that I should just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I may die. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I want to ask you just to hold on to that. Set your, set your shame down. Set your guilt down for just a moment, and, and hear the voice of God. 
if it's talked about in church, people often walk away feeling unloved or unlovable. And the last thing I want any of you to ever feel in this place is unloved and unlovable. Uh, I heard another speaker, um, Brenda Salter McNeil, she was actually just talking about her book. She wasn't even talking about what was in the book. She was talking about the cover of the book. And she said, you guys see the cover of this book? It's so amazing. She's telling us all about it. And we're like, okay, whatever. And she made this comment. She said, I think a book is like the church. It should start telling the story before you enter the doors. The, the, the church should be telling the story before you enter its doors. And, and as I was preparing this sermon, I realized, you know, our church does start to tell the story before you enter the doors. I got a picture to show you. Can you put the picture up there? Any, can, you, can you do that for me? There you go. Your mistakes do not define you. This is the message that our church is speaking to the culture before you enter the doors. So this morning, no matter where you're at with this, no matter where you're at with your sexuality, no matter where you're at with your mistakes of your past or where you've been, I want you to hear this, that your mistakes do not define you. They are not who you are. And that God has a different, uh, different desire for your life, um, a desire for wholeness. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Um, so I just want to invite you to remember that you are loved and you are lovable, that Jesus is more than just your Savior. He didn't die just to get you out of hell and into heaven. He died because he is also your healer. And so that there is these things that may have happened in your life, um, from, from rape to choices to I mean, all kinds of stuff around our sexuality. And God is coming to us this morning, and he's coming to you. Jesus is coming to you as a healer who wants to heal your wounds and heal your brokenness no matter where you're coming from as we engage this stuff. So hold on to this, okay? It's a space of grace this morning. We've talked about a pocket of grace, right? Just a pocket of pure grace right now. We're all just swimming in it. And in the midst of that, God wants to speak something. So would you pray with me? That was my introduction. Took me about half the sermon time. Um, We'll see if I can get to any teaching today. So Jesus, uh, this is a heavy, or can be a heavy topic, and it doesn't need to be. Um, You have intended sexuality for good. Um, and really, Jesus, I believe that it's probably best couched in the sermon on having fun. And yet it's so broken and so messed up, and we are so triggered and so wounded by something that is so powerful that you gave us. Um, Jesus, I just pray for healing this morning. I pray for a healing of relationships. I pray for healing of hearts. I pray for healing of body and mind as we uh, look at and explore your intention for us in our sexuality and our purity. So, God, we invite your Holy Spirit. Um, for those of us, Jesus, that need it, we, we ask for conviction, and we all do. We need to be convicted of the places that we've wandered from you. For those of us who are so caught up in our guilt and our shame, God, we pray for your mercy and grace to break through so that we can receive you into our hearts as you want to be fully and to be fully known and fully loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I should have told you to open your Bibles before I did all that. Because now you're going to have to wander and find your way to the book of 1 Corinthians, which has a lot to say about sexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. It'll be up on the screen. I'm just going to read this to you. And, you know, honestly, it's a little bit like uh, the conflict sermon that we found that like any of the epistles that we chose, the the epistles are the the letters at the end of the Bible. We could have chosen any of those to talk about it. The same is true about sexuality. Could have chose any of the books to talk about it. In one form or another, it comes up um, because it is a big deal. And so I chose this one, and I'm going to be referencing it back and forth. Uh, This isn't going to be an exegetical sermon where I take and tell you everything that's behind everything, but here it comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me. The end. Let's just leave right there, okay? (laughs) Be nice. It's all lawful. It's all good. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Another translation would say the body is not meant for impurity, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord up 
and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. That was a mouthful. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Another translation says, so honor God with your body. Say, honor God. That is the bottom line. Honor God. Honor God first. That's not even in my notes. That's like the big point. (laughs) Honor God with our bodies. Christians are really, we're seen as pretty prudish in our culture, aren't we? Um, we, people have a lot of questions, like, especially people that have no experience with the church. They kind of look at the church and they're like, why are you guys such prudes? Why does the church teach that purity is so important? What is wrong with sex outside of marriage? I mean, what's wrong with trying it out? How could you commit to somebody for the rest of your life without knowing if it's going to work? It works. I'm just saying, um, why, why do the scriptures come off so harsh sometimes? Like Paul sounds like a jerk right here. I just got to admit it. He just doesn't sound very nice. Why would God make something so good and then come down so hard on people for using it, right? Why would he do that? That makes no sense. That's like giving somebody, he's like, here, I'm giving you a brand new Camaro, and here are the keys to it. Now, the catch is you can't drive it ever unless you're married. It's just not nice. Why would God do something like that? You know, people are like, unmarried people have needs too. Why is it that just married people get to engage in this? I I don't get it. You know, it's hard. All of these questions, they're tough. I get it. Being a single person and pursuing purity is very, very difficult. I get it. I was single once too. It was a long time ago. I have some recollection of it being difficult. And guess what? When you're married, married people, come on, give me an amen on this. It doesn't get easier. (laughs) <laughs> apparently only Janice is, is uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently only Janice is honest. I was going to say, for the rest of us, it was really easy. Single people, it is the, one of the biggest lies that is handed to us in culture is that your sexual relationship, your sexuality, which includes way more than what you do in the bedroom, it's how you identify yourself as a human being, how you move through the world, how you engage with life, your sexuality, your identity, it is everything. And it doesn't get easier when you get married. In fact, sometimes it gets harder. It gets more difficult because you find out just how formed you have been by things like television and books and magazines. And now I'm not even talking about jumping toward pornography. I'm just talking about how the world talks. You would be surprised how often you're like, that's not how it works. I really thought that was how it works. Well, why did I think that's how it works? I'm not been, I've not been formed by God. I'm surprised. It doesn't get easier. You find out that how we've engaged with culture, what culture has said has formed us. We find out that our parents have taught us things or didn't, you know, even by their silence, like not teaching you something has taught you something. And we get into this this relationship where the two are supposed to become one, and we're like, this is a lot harder than I thought. This isn't just, it's not just as natural as I think that it should be. And we discover that we are really, as I've said over and over, we are more formed by our culture and our family of origins than we are by Jesus. And in the new family of Jesus, that's not how it's meant to be. We're going to be formed by Jesus. We're going to allow Jesus to have every access to every area of our lives. And that's what I believe, that he wants to have a conversation with us, each one of us, about every area of our life. He's not just concerned about how you pray. He's not just concerned about whether you cuss or don't cuss. He wants to talk about the things that are seen and the things that are unseen. He wants to talk about the things that you're aware of and the things that you're unaware of. He wants to enter into the deepest places of our life and have a conversation that not, is not about shame or guilt, but is about wholeness. 
that's about grace. And that's what this conversation is all about. And the other reason, so, so the church has been seen as prudish, and we have a hard time talking about it. It's a difficult thing. But on top of all of that, not only uh, is the church seen as prudish, but they've kind of come down hard on things that are sexual in nature. Um, sometimes with good reason and sometimes with not. So this passage in 1 Corinthians, is it's couched in the context of a church that is planted in the city of Corinth, which is a Roman city, a Roman port city, uh, 2,000 years ago. And in the middle of that city, I think I have a picture of it, there is a temple to Aphrodite. I think we have a picture of that. Uh, I don't know, but we'll see. It may come up or it may not. Go, ooh, if it does. And if it doesn't, just keep quiet. Oh, there it is. That's good. So Roman culture has been kind of bad-mouthed a little bit when it comes to sexuality. Uh, a lot of people think it's like, oh, it's just all parties and, and orgies and things like that. And it wasn't really the case in the early days of the Republic. But as time progressed, as the Roman Republic uh, grew old, uh, things like sexuality began to become out of control. And so men who were married were expected to sow their wild oats wherever. They were also expected to worship at the Temple of Aphrodite, which, uh, by the way, you worship the Temple of Aphrodite through prostitution, engaging with prostitutes in, in the temple itself. Uh, some people are like, hey, that sounds like great worship. Why aren't we into that? Um, it's not, not a good thing because then they would come home with all of their sicknesses and diseases and such and then share them with their wives who were not expected to enjoy sex and only existed to have children. This was Roman culture at the time that the book of 1 Corinthians was written. And so Paul is like, this is not good because we've got these people who just came to Jesus, who have just joined the new family of Jesus. They love God. They want to come to church on Sunday morning. They want to worship him. They didn't have acoustic guitars. They were probably playing like a harp or something. It was weird. But they're like, yes, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And now I'm done praising Jesus, and now I need to go praise Aphrodite. And they're incorporating the practices of that temple back into their life. And, and Paul's saying, look, number one, when you join the new family of Jesus, you are joined to Jesus. And so when you bring things in from the outside, like an STD to your wife, you're bringing those things into the new family of Jesus and spreading them around. You're not your own anymore. You're a part of something different. So Paul's coming down really hard on these things and saying, look, this culture that's outside is not okay. The new family of Jesus is going to act differently, and this is how we're going to do it. Now, that hard message got received by the early church. And they had a sexual ethic that people didn't understand. They're like, you guys are just plain weird. And not only are you weird, because you're not worshiping Aphrodite, our crops aren't growing. Okay? Our, our commerce is not flourishing. It's your fault. And so people began to be persecuted and kicked out of cities because they weren't worshiping the Roman pantheon, including Aphrodite. The church received that message, they acted differently, and then as time went on, the early church fathers, within a hundred years of this time, began to get a little crazy with Paul's messages. So we come to the year 185, and we get this guy named Origen. I have a picture of him, too. Um, I think they had, it was like the first camera. This is what they look like. Um, and could you have a more original name than Origen? Is that even possible? It's like where the word original comes from. So he lived from 185 to 254. This guy is one of the top scholars in Christianity, in all of Christian history. Super duper smart guy. That's why his forehead's so tall. His brain is a little bit bigger. And he uh, lived in Alexandria, Egypt. He probably wasn't as white as that. He was probably more Egyptian. And um, he began to study the Bible, and he was reading my favorite book, Genesis chapter 1. And he kept going over and over Genesis chapter 3, looking at the, the fall of man. And he came to this conclusion. Something is fundamentally wrong with humanity today because of what happened with Adam and Eve. And the thing that defines that fundamental brokenness is sex. The thing that defines that fundamental brokenness is sex. He called it original sin. It had to do with how, how we procreate, and he said that that is all broken now. It doesn't work anymore. And so what he did, he's like original sin now becomes this theology that we still, we still buy into today. But he, he went home after pondering all this, and he castrated himself. Yeah. Following Paul's instructions, or now, now my brain is mixed up with the Jesus if, you're, if, you're, if your eye offends you, cut it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. 
And, and so he's following these dictates of this new sexuality that we're living in as a family of Jesus, and he castrates himself. Now, early church fathers at that time, they said, that was a really bad idea, dude. Why did you do that? And it was, it was roundly condemned as really poor judgment on his part. And they didn't have, they didn't have like anesthesia. I don't know. I'm just saying. I, yeah. So, but this guy is forming Christian thinking to this day. And that was his thinking around sexuality. Then we come to another guy who lived just, uh, just a, a while. I didn't write down the dates, but it's up here. Uh, 354. So, you know, about 100 years later, this guy, uh, Augustine of Hippo, was born. You know, I can't, whenever it's Augustine of Hippo, I imagine him, like, riding on a hippopotamus and, you know, this mythical creature. It's just amazing. But this guy, before he became a Christian, was a sex addict. He was. He visited prostitutes and, and all kinds of stuff, and, and, and he was what, what some would call a trisexual. He would try anything. And uh, he had like even children and stuff, which was okay in that day and age. Um, I don't understand why that was ever okay, but he, just anything. He had a he had a mistress that he lived with for fourteen years and had children with, uh, without ever getting married. And his his whole identity around this idea of sexuality was super super broken. And then he came to Christ, and he looked at sexuality and said, "You know what? Origin got it right." This is a part of original sin, and the only way that this is okay is if you're having children. If you intend to have children, then this is not sinful. But every other aspect in which this would enter our lives is sinful and broken. So he went from sex addict to complete prude, I guess. I don't know what you call the other side of that. Just way out to this other end. And these are the guys, our foundational leaders, the people that have been developing our theology. And really, people would say that Augustine has, in, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? He has influenced, thank you. I'm like, involved? No. He's influenced Christian theology more than anybody else in the last 1,500 years, except for maybe Martin Luther. Um, this guy has a lot to do with how we think and believe about God based on the scriptures. And yet, so this is what we're carrying the church has not taught it well, and this is a part of why. Does that make sense, what I'm telling you? I'm trying to give you a little bit of picture of a church history about around this stuff. It's difficult to untangle the things that were taught to us from what the Scripture is saying and from what God is speaking to us in the midst of our culture, and then you add the culture on top of that, and it just gets really messy. And so as pastors, we're like, you know what? This is hard. Why would I want to spend my time preaching about this? Like, can I do something easy? Let's just talk about love. Let's, let's talk about grace. Let's talk about having fun. That's easy. But untangling my family of origin mess, untangling my cultural mess, untangling my theological mess, all from this stuff, and to figure out what is God saying today is tough. And it's not, it's not just me that, that struggles with this. This has been church history. We've had bishops that have had concubines. We've had pedophile priests. We've had pastors that have affairs and church leaders nurse, nursing porn addictions. It's not just a common everyday Christian. It's your leaders that are struggling with this stuff. We're hurt. We're ashamed. We're broken. There's divorces. There's, it's just sexuality is tearing the church apart. It is. It's tearing the church apart. But I want you to hear this. I believe... No, I'm going to take off the I believe because that makes this passive. God wants something better for you. Can you just look at, like, like if you're a parent, look at your kid and say, God wants something better for you. And if you're not a parent, look at your spouse. And if you're not married, look at the person next to you and say, God wants something better for you. That was awkward, wasn't it? Can I just tell you that it feels awkward, but what you just did was you preached the gospel to one another. Did you know that? That you just preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. God wants something better for you. When we apply it to hell, God wants something better than hell for you. Oh, bonus, you know, <laughs> everything's up from hell, right? When we talk about our sexuality, God wants something better for you than what this world is offering than what you've been taught, what you've learned, what, what origin thought was right. He wants something better for you. How many of you want to say amen to that? Anybody? I mean, come on. 
So Paul, the practical theologian, he's speaking into this culture of rampant sexuality, um, this radical message about sexuality, that God has a purpose for it, that it has a place, that we are joined to Christ. And so in the midst of that, we have to work for purity. God wants to know you completely, and he wants to be known by you completely. That is God's ultimate good, to be known and fully loved. That is what God desires for you. That is the more, the better that God wants, that you would be known and fully loved by him and by somebody else in this world. It's not just a far-off promise. It's not just a far-off hope. It's good news then, and it's good news today that you can be known and fully loved. That's what God desires. It's this big picture of what God wants. It's, it's what healthy sexuality looks like. It's not dominated, as Paul says. It says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And that's what we see is going on in this rampantly sexualized culture is that we've become dominated by sexuality. I'm not just saying dominated by sex or dominated by pornography. We're dominated by sexuality. We're trained from birth to see, for men to see women in, in the light of sexuality and women to see men in the light of sexuality and, and to use that sexuality for our own benefit. We've been dominated as a culture by it. But in the new family of Jesus, we do it differently. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial, and I will not be dominated by anything. We're dominated by lots of things, aren't we? We're dominated by our emotions, very often. Emotions, and then we go, oh, emotions are bad. Oh, emotions are good, as long as they're not dominating us. They're not running us over and driving us, right? We're dominated by our sexuality. We're dominated by our desires. We're dominated by a need for acceptance. We're dominated by the pursuit of love from somebody else. So in that domination, what we do is we avoid we avoid the topic, we avoid other people, we avoid honesty, we move to false peace. We can't, we get to this place where we're so dominated by it that we have rules, like the Billy Graham rule, where a pastor is not supposed to be in the same room with a member of the opposite sex alone. And now I, I love Billy Graham, and I think it's great, and I think it was a time in history where they talked about that. But that shows that the church was dominated by the sexuality. And that we need to learn a way of being as individuals where we can be healthy and whole and have healthy and whole relationships with members of the opposite sex without it being sexualized. Does that make sense? I'm kind of just talking. I mean, this is my living room again. I'm just kind of talking. It's kind of hard. It's kind of difficult. And it's not something that I'd say that I do real well, okay? I'm not, not saying I'm an expert at this. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Where in the world am I? I'm at church. I'm sitting on the stage in my living room. So God is inviting us to this picture of true peace, shalom. And that requires a freedom from coercion. It requires a freedom from manipulation. And it requires a belief in the inherent value of every person. That God has created us uniquely and wonderfully and specially, and he loves us uniquely and wonderfully and specially, and so we can treat each other in that way, despite our sexuality, like despite our gender. There's the word I'm looking for. God is seeking a place where we can have unhindered and undistracted intimacy. In chapter 8 of this same book, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking again about sexuality, and this is what he says uh, from you. He says, I, what he says is, he's like, I want you to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about how thing, about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. The whole, his whole teaching around sexuality is that we would be free from the anxieties of the world so that we can be concerned about what God is concerned about, and so that in our relationships with one another, those anxieties are not coming to divide us. The, 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 the brokenness is not coming in and sneaking in to divide us and to break us apart. He wants us to be able to be unhindered, and undistracted in our relationships with one another. This thing keeps cutting out. I don't know why. There we go. But sexuality outside of its right context, it causes a lot of anxiety. 
especially when we take it outside of marriage. The marriage covenant holds us together and says, look, we're committed to making this thing work forever. But you take that away, and suddenly, and you bring sexuality into the into that relationship, and there's no commitment to it. What you're doing is you're trying to bring honesty and openness and and connection and being known and loved into a context where it's not safe. You follow me on that? It's not safe because that other person can look at you and go, "Oh shoot, I'm out." Right? There's no commitment to it. And that's what God is seeking is an undistracted, unhindered intimacy that's healthy and it's uninterrupted. And when we allow impurity to come into our sexuality, what we do is we bring a divider in between our, our, our loved ones, even our families, not just our, our husbands or wives, in between people that we just relate to in the streets. We allow something broken to come between us. God is also seeking uh, us to be able to have the ability to have a selfless love for other people. Um, throughout, throughout the New Testament, when, whenever sexuality is brought up, very frequently, greed is also brought up. Greed is brought up. And it's really bizarre um, that sexual purity and greed would be connected in the Bible. In Ephesians four seventeen through 20, this is how Paul says it there. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Impurity and brokenness in our sexuality as we seek to pursue our sexuality outside of the bounds of a healthy space is really about greed. It's about meeting our own needs. It's about meeting our desires. And God is calling us to a selfless love for the sake of somebody else where we give ourselves holy and are able to give ourselves holy to somebody else and able to give ourselves to him holy. So God is calling us to selflessness. But instead, humans often use each other. And many of you have been the victims of that using to get what they need. Some of us, as, as men, men often use love to get sex. And women use sex to get love. Did you follow that? We come from different motivations. But in either direction, we're using another person to get something that we want rather than seeking the best for the other. The Scripture has such a high view of ourselves, of, of us as human beings. In Genesis, it says that we are made in the image of God, that you are the image of God on earth. Here, Paul says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. True intimacy requires that we are able to see the other as the image of God in bed next to me as the temple of the Holy Spirit sharing my bedroom. That's the ultimate picture of intimacy. If you are all somebody ever sees of Jesus, if you were that, the question is, what does your sexuality say to them about who God is and how you pursue your needs and wants, or is it that you're turning and, and being selfless for the sake of somebody else? How does your ability to love well and to love purely speak of who God is? Now, I don't say that, again, with, with any guilt. I don't want to put shame on you, but I want to invite you into something more. I want to invite you to live as a member of the new family of Jesus and to pursue purity. I keep using this word purity, and it doesn't come up in the text all that often. The, the image of purity really is it's, it's like uh, my cup of coffee here. Right now in this cup is, is hot water, um, Starbucks uh, espresso blend beans. Yes, we serve Starbucks here, thanks to Starbucks, who donated a bunch of coffee. And uh, some lovely half and half, and that is all, unless somebody snuck something else in here. Now, I love a good cup of coffee. And I would never defile this cup of coffee with something poisonous or something that would make it taste bad or something. I don't even want to defile it with cold. So we got this, this cup that would keep it hot on the moon for days. Still, I can drink coffee out of this thing and burn my mouth, and I put it in here four hours ago. That's the image of purity, that this would stay perfect as it is and not allow something to be introduced to it that would defile or to break down its purity. 
You guys get that picture? It's not something that makes you better. It's something that keeps it from being bad. It keeps it from being not palatable. Or in the context of the family of Jesus, that keeps it from poisoning our relationships. We don't want to make decisions now outside of the bounds of a covenant relationship with somebody that would defile that covenant relationship or that would defile the family of God, that would poison it. You following me? When I use the word defile, it sounds like unholy or something, like this is a holier-than-thou thing. Purity does not make you more lovable by God. That's what I thought it did. Purity does not make you more lovable by God. If you have been the victim of, of, of rape and your purity was taken from you in that moment, it does not make you less lovable by God. If you made choices that would introduce pain or scars or hurt into your relationship, it does not make you less lovable by God. Purity doesn't make you more lovable, but it makes you more able to love. You following that? You with me? Yeah. Okay. Purity makes you better able to love, better able to love God and to love others. So pursue purity. Pursue protecting the coffee. Keep the coffee hot and pure. I like my coffee black and sometimes with cream so I can drink more coffee. But we keep it pure so as not to ruin it. Purity is a pursuit. It is not a destination. I, this is the thing that the church has done. There was this whole, and Sarah, again, we're just, that's the shortest of chats this morning, and you're like in the sermon nine times. It was literally like eight sentences, and here you are again. Uh, you know, we talked about the whole purity movement in the church, like kiss dating goodbye and all of this stuff, and it's created this, this whole culture of shame and performance, and that we get people in that that, like, I've arrived. I kissed dating goodbye, and it's in my past. I'm now, you know, and we move, we, like, get this holy thing about us. You guys encountered Christians like this? I am so holy. It's not a destination that we arrive at. It's something that we pursue because all of us are broken. You know, we are all, we all are broken somehow. We carry, we got grandpa in our bones, even if we haven't made mistakes ourselves. We carry impurities in us, and we are pursuing the removal of the impurities. We are pursuing purity rather than arriving at a destination. And we do that by choices. God loves to let us make choices. Crazy theology right here. That God gives you the choices. You know where we get this from? We get this from the idea of free will. We've all been given free will. We get to make choices every day. Lots of choices. And God's standing there going, you get to make a choice today. Congratulations. This is so exciting. And God gets excited about these choices that you're making. And he's like, what are you going to choose? And it's like reading a choose-your-own-adventure book, right? Where is this going to go? I don't know where this is going to go. God's like, I don't know where this is going to happen. This is amazing. What are they going to do? And they're going to choose. And we get to choose every day when we're called to make powerful choices because you know what I mean by powerful choices? They're choices that affect our future. They're choices that affect our families and our relationships. They're choices that affect our oneness with God. We get to choose every day. Make cho- choices both inside and outside that honor God and protect our purity. So we're looking at two kinds of purity, and we're almost done. You guys still with me? Like Some of you look like you're like sitting on the front of a locomotive going 80 miles an hour, and your face is just peeling back. Some of you are like, big deal. I don't know. So just stay with me. We're going to talk about inward purity and outward purity because uh, these are really important. And uh, before, I don't know, I could flip-flop this however I want to. Let's just talk about this. Um, outward purity. So outward purity is pretty clear and obvious, right? <laughs> what that means is making moral decisions. It makes making decisions that... Uh, will protect our marriages, making decisions that will protect our, our integrity as an individual, our, our health. It's making decisions that protect our heart. It's making decisions that protect our relationship with God. But it's doing that out of an understanding of that big picture of sexuality. And it comes back to Genesis, and I keep pointing back to it, but I'm going to read this to you because Paul brings it up right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were unashamed. There's this, there's this process that's taking place here. Uh, it's leaving and cleaving. We've heard like that, that phrase before. Like cleaving with me, I'm thinking a meat cleaver. It's chopping something in half, but it actually means to hold on. Um, so I, maybe that's why a meat cleaver is just heavy. You have to hold on tight. Uh, so you, you leave your family of origin. You cling to something new. And that clinging develops into a one fleshness. See, sex is the top of the mountain for humans. We have climbed a ladder or a mountaintop as we move toward intimacy with one person to become one flesh. But in our culture, we often get it flipped. We get this flipped upside down where we, we, we go for sexuality without commitment. There's this uh, relationship attachment model. Has anybody ever heard of this? The RAM model of relationships? <laughs> it's like RAM tough. Um, ram it down your throat. Yeah, it's like, there's these, these areas of our relationships that, um, that we have to be thinking about. It's how, how well do you know a person? How much do you trust a person? How much can you rely on a person? How much can you... Um, or is that person committed to you and to your good? And then lastly, touch. And the idea is as you look at those, those things in order, the very first one should be the highest level, like on a scale of 1 to 10, and the last one should be the lowest. You following what I'm saying here? You, you picking up what I'm laying down? It's, it's a backwards model. This is the model of Genesis where we leave our family of origin and we cleave to our wife and then we become one flesh. We move through these things. And first, like, I should know a person a fair amount before I trust them, right? Just, just saying, like, you come up to me, I never met you before. You're like, hi, my name's Joe. Can I have your car? You're like, no, who are you? I wouldn't, you can't have my car. You can't, I'm not even going to give you a stick of gum. You know, like, I I need to trust you with gum. <laughs> I don't know you. But when you know somebody a little bit, and you're like, okay, I could trust you with a stick of gum. You're not going to throw it at me or spit at me or whatever. You're not going to chew like a horse. I don't know. I could trust you with that stick of gum. And so it, it, it's as you know somebody, you know, the trust comes up. And as the trust comes up, then you have, well, I can actually rely on that person to be there. Right, I can I can rely on that person to be there for me and to have my best commit my best interest at heart. These are our friendships. As we know people, we trust them. We trust our friends, and we can rely on them. And then there's this commitment, like, okay, you're not going to just disappear on me. You're not just going to pull out from under me. And as we get to know people, and we trust them, and we can rely on them, and we commit to them, then we share deeper and deeper parts of ourselves. Right? We have friends that we can share just about anything with. But we don't do that with people we don't know or trust. Then sex is at the very end of this thing, where touch comes into play. And it's the smallest of the things. It's not to say that touch isn't awesome. It's to say that you need to know somebody a lot and trust somebody a lot and be committed to somebody a lot and be able to rely on somebody a lot before you get to this place where you allow them access to you. Yeah? This is not, this isn't, uh, this isn't a psychology idea. This is leaving and cleaving. This is leaving your family and cleaving. And it's the very picture of God and the church. Jesus invites us to be born into a new family, and we leave our family of origin, and we cleave to him until we become one flesh with God. And that happens through knowing, trusting, committing, and relying, and engaging with God. You guys see this? It's like I just took your theology and I just applied it to your sexuality. The things that you believe about God, it just applies to your bedroom. Whoa! So that is the picture of Christian purity, that we are pursuing that relationship. And we're not out running out ahead trying to get to touch before we start with getting to know. And God is inviting you, no matter where you're at, into a relationship with him of continual knowing and loving and growing and trusting and committing. That's outward purity. Then there's inward purity. So this is what I thought. Like purity just only applied to the outside. Okay, don't look at pornography. Check. Don't touch a girl. Check. Don't don't have sex with her because that leads to dancing. You know, check. I can do that. 
Yeah, no, that's not what they said in college. They said it was the other way around. I didn't realize, however, that there's a whole other aspect of purity, and it's the inward side. There's, there's something going on in your head. Jesus talks about this when he says, when you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. He's like, if you've got something going on in your brain in this area, you're, it's impurity. And it's like, men, we're all visual, and we're like, dang it, this is, how are we going to do this? And I don't know what the women's side of that is, because I've never been in a woman's head before. But, like, purity is a whole, there's this whole thought life going on here that, that it's even harder than the outward stuff. It's how what we view and take in and put in. It's, it's how we think about those things and what we say is okay and what we say is not okay. We, we have this outward purity that if we sit and just focus on this and never deal with the inside, we become what Jesus said the, the, uh, the Pharisees were, whitewashed tombs, right? A cup that's filthy on the inside, but the outside's nice and sparkly. We become holier than thou. That's where that comes from. We're like, I'm so holy. Look at me. And like, but inside, I'm just a, I'm just a, there's dead bones inside. And God is inviting us to have integrity. Big word, but it means that you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. That you are the same in your bedroom as you are in your living room. That you're same at the same person here on Sunday morning that you are at the coffee shop on Thursday afternoon integrity, that you are the same inside and out. And this is what God calls us to. And it's, it's not that we would ever be divided, but that we would be whole. That's wholeness. Integrity is a picture of wholeness. So we pursue inward wholeness as well. We want to be the same person all the time. Pursue inward purity. Leaving and cleaving and, and on the outside, but leaving and cleaving as well on the inside. And the only way to do that, really, is to stay close to God. Back to the second verse is the same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Seek God. It is the only way to bring inward purity. It's not, it's not your accountability partner is going to bring inward purity because they don't know what's going on in your head. Seek God above all. Let God bring, uh, bring, bring conviction. Let God point out where you have fallen short, and respond to him. There's typically three responses, and I actually I found this um, true in my life, three responses to impurity of any kind, whether it's, whether it's sexual or, you know, greed or uh, pride or whatever. I, there's generally three responses I have, and I imagine this is pretty universal for human beings. The first one is defensiveness. No, I didn't. I'm not like that, you know? Or the belligerent type, it's like, no, you. You know, we get defensive when somebody says you, you're broken. There's impurity in you. And when God comes to us and he says, hey, I want to have this conversation with you. And you're like, no, you. We get, we get defensive. And then sometimes, instead of defensiveness, I move to remorse. You know, I'm sorry. Oh, jeez, I'm caught. There's a difference between being sorry because you're caught and sorry and repent, repentant which is the third, repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance, and that repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I love that. It leaves no regret. The things that are in the rearview mirror are just in the rearview mirror. You don't have regrets. You're free. God is doing something this morning. He wants to bring healing to those things. And so when God comes and he says, hey, I want to have this conversation with you about this, pursue purity and come in repentance. Worldly sorrow, it brings death. That's what the passage says, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That was a Bible verse. Good one to memorize. Recommend it. Going to work on it myself, I think. I got to the end of all that. It's right, right on time. And so now the question is, what do I do with everything you just rambled about, Pastor Jamie? What I'm going to do is give you a minute, and I want you to just kind of answer this question for yourself. Okay? What is God's invitation to you today regarding this material? Because we're all at different places. Happily married, 
Some of us are unhappily married. Some of us are unhappily single. And some of us are happily single. We're all different places, but you are all sexual beings because you are all male or female. So what is God's invitation to you today in purity? What is he calling you to? Or do you need to pursue? I'm going to give you a minute of, of, of silence, and we're going to close with, with a song, and we're going to go home. So, Jesus, I just invite your presence. Um, as you've been here all this time, God, we invite you to speak. And you've been speaking through these words, these thoughts, these passages, through our history. I just, God, pray that you would speak uh, personally and individually now to each one of us, and that we would hear your voice and that we would follow you and we would move toward repentance. Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us. Here I stand before you now, as honestly as I know how. Broken by the days gone by, Spirit, help my soul to rise. tried my best but still I failed and even then you're with me there you remind me I'm a child of God regardless of the things I've done oh my hope is found in perfect love sing your mercy
But my God says to the prodigal, come on, let's sing it. My beloved one, you're welcome home. just invite you to continue speaking to us all over this place. Lord, we just confess we're human beings and there are places where we've messed up. There are broken places. God, we're carrying shame. We're carrying guilt. We're carrying things that we were never intended to carry. God, we have been harmed by other people. We've harmed other people. We've left things undone that we should have done. We've not done things that we wanted to do. God, all of these things we carry, and they just lead this weight upon us, and you call us into freedom. Jesus, your mercy right now is triumphing over the judgment of our own hearts. And so, God, we pray for healing. We ask that you would heal the scars and the wounds and the brokenness of the past and set us free to walk in wholeness and in grace for other people's sake, God, not just for our own, not just for our own freedom, but for the freedom of this world, for the freedom of this church, for the freedom of our families, for the freedom of our children. God, we just pray and we believe and we receive freedom over this whole place. God, for every wound, for every hurt, may your mercy just be poured over us right now. May you just bind those wounds, God. May you break up the scar tissue. May you bring real healing. Knit back the, those things that were broken and lost. And God, for those of us who have been walking as whitewashed tombs, those of us who have been walking with this outward affect of purity, God, and inside there is turmoil, there is addiction, there is all kinds of things going on. We pray for healing in those places too and freedom in those places too, Jesus. 
Lord, we give you our whole selves because we are better together with you and with one another, but only if we can be honest before you. And so, Jesus, we give you our whole selves, inside and out. And we give you access to the areas of our heart which we have hidden. And we give you access to the areas of our lives which we've kept private. And we ask that you would bring healing and wholeness to those places. In Jesus' name. I just want to pray a blessing over you that you would go in God's grace and mercy in this day, that his mercy would triumph over the judgment that you may be experiencing. If you need extra prayer this morning, Heidi and I are available. And uh, I know Annie and probably Joe and Janice and Jan, there are others here that would just love to pray with you privately um, or publicly. (laughs) Um, But go knowing that in this place is a space of grace to struggle and to fail and to find hope and redemption and to move toward Jesus and that know that you are loved fully by God and known fully by him and loved as much as Heidi and I are absolutely possible, as, as much as we have a capacity to, we love you too. And this church does too. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in his grace.